You're listening to In Real Life. I'm Emily. And I'm Kim Zilla. And today, in studio, live, we have Dan Boda from Vocal Fry right off the microphone. So he has Vocal Fry on Fridays from 7 to 8 p.m. Mondays. 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 Today's, <laughs> Today's not Friday? Oh, my God. I feel like it's Friday, too. It yeah. does feel like a Friday. Let's just make it a Friday. <laughs> okay, let's make it a Friday. Everybody has off tomorrow. Executive yeah. order. That's how these things work, right? <laughs> So um, the reason that we wanted to start bringing in um, DJs that have some really great music shows is that there's some really interesting um, backgrounds behind a lot of wonderful DJs here, including yourself. So um, we wanted to just check in and uh, talk to you a little bit about who you are um, off mic. And um, I think a little bit of this applies to what's going on in the world today. So, um, yeah, a if bit. you can give a little bit of background on on yourself. <laughs> sure. Well, I've been doing Vocal Fry for a couple of years, and before that I did uh, Airborne Event. Um, and I guess I started out here in, like, 90, 1999 at FMU, um, mm. doing, like, overnights and fill-ins and kind of doing regular fill-ins. And then um, by, like, 2000, I was doing a, a show. And I've had a couple of, you know, hiatuses or uh, time changes over. But then I started doing Vocal Fry, which is a show that focuses on extended vocal techniques of all different kinds. So that's everything from yodeling to throat singing to beatboxing to efing to like whatever kind of weird. What's efing? <laughs> Did you ever see Hee Haw? No. That's like a reference that usually falls flat these days. <laughs> <laughs> it tells me that I'm an old. But um, no. I think uh, I'm an old too. But I don't even. I'm thinking of of hee haw, and I'm not thinking what what it was like. A would... var- it was like a variety show on yeah. TV of okay. like kind of like a comedy variety show, kind of like the Smother Smothers Brothers or something yeah. like that, and it was like kind of country themed. So there was this duo, this guy Jimmy Riddle, mm-hmm. and um, this I forget the other guy's name, and they would do like these little s- musical interludes. And Jimmy Riddle did this thing called efing that's sometimes called hillbilly beatboxing, and it's like, ooh, ee, ooh, ee. Yeah. I, oh, I can't man. really do it, but that that's, sounds a little bit like that. But I know what like you mean. Thing. You did a good enough imitation okay. that I can identify <laughs> it. <laughs> and, I, cool. and I didn't destroy my uvula doing it either. Okay. <laughs> It's like an occupational hazard of evil. Oh, but, these um, guys really? and these enlarged uvulas. <laughs> <laughs> this is. <laughs> well, Kim, I mean, if you want to talk about that, <laughs> I'd love to know about it. It's a, it's a, it's a condition. Um, so, uh, yeah. So uh, everything in the show. There's all all kinds of weird mm. musical genres all around the world, and from you know rock and roll stuff. Like I played. Uh, the yodeling uh, prog song tonight, you know, uh, Hocus Pocus, yeah. my focus, yeah. Um, as well as like, you know, field recordings of like pygmies yodeling in the forest or that kind of thing. So. That's so cool. That's I will say that it's, it's almost entirely stuff that I haven't heard before, which is cool. cool. I'm, I'm into that. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, a, it's a, like a really educational show i'm still having fun doing it I, you know it's like kind of a idea that i wasn't sure how long you know how long can you do this for mm-hmm. you know because maybe i can't do it forever because at some point i'll feel like i'm just playing the same things over again but, right. but there turns out to be lots and lots of weird things that people do with their voices and uh, and i'm sure the more you do it people are passing things on to you that you haven't seen before either yeah i mean listeners have been an incredible resource yeah. i mean i get comments and suggestions all the time and yeah nice 
Yeah. So it's still it's still a lot of fun, and um, yeah, I feel like I'm still like finding new things, and it's really cool. That's, That's awesome. really cool. So then, uh, outside of the WFMU studios, uh, what do you what do you uh, what do you do? Well, I'm a lawyer outside of FMU. One of those good ones. Yeah, I'm a, I guess I'm, a, I'm on the side of good. <laughs> <laughs> I try to be. I think most lawyers would tell you that they try to be. Maybe not. Maybe most wouldn't. But, um, yeah, I, uh, I went to law school and I graduated in, like, 2007. Mm-hmm. And I worked in the federal courts for judges mm-hmm. for about nine years as a law clerk. So <laughs> that means you sort of work... Uh, directly with the judge and do whatever kind of legal tasks they need done. So it's kind of like you're a lawyer with one client, and that mm. client is a federal judge <laughs> who's trying to, you know, re- uh, find the right answer to disputes that are in court in front of them, and your job is to help the judge however they want you to do that. So that involves a lot of research, you know, writing, uh, like, in, you know, finding out what the, the law says about the questions in front of the judge, and, mm-hmm. and maybe... Um, you know, drafting the opinions so the judge can sort of look at the draft and use it as a starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's pretty interesting work. I like it because it was always trying to get the right answer, and it's a really good way. You, you learn how to kind of pick up any question and try to turn it around and figure out what makes sense, Yeah. you know. And the, it has a practical side as well as, like, kind of a, like, the what the law says, but then there's also this dispute with these people who are, you know, struggling over something, and there's usually money at stake or, you know, people's welfare at stake or, you know, something kind of big at stake for them to get into federal court. So it's really, uh, it was always really interesting to try to find the right answer, you know, not just intellectually, but morally, right? So, Is there a case that stands out to you when you were, when you were working on those cases? I can't really talk about specific cases and, and sort of how we process them because it's just a, you know, a confidentiality thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there were a lot of really interesting issues that, mm. that I saw. And before uh, I went to law school, I worked for um, New York City investigating complaints about police misconduct, and I oh. did that for about seven oh, years. Wow. So that involved um, also kind of being a neutral party where both sides sort of thought that I wasn't neutral, like the ah. civilians often were very cynical and, mm-hmm. and thought that I was going to try to like whitewash the complaint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the police union, you can find a million statements from the police union saying that the agency I work for exists to try to hang cops for, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I did that for a long time, and I kind of liked being in the middle of this um, and trying to just find, you know, what is there evidence for? Like if a cop um, is getting com- uh, complaint against them and they did the right thing, mm-hmm. I want to be able to sort of show, yes, what, what they're accused of doing happened, but they, they did the right thing. It was the right thing to do in that situation. It was legal. Mm-hmm. And if not, you know, I wanted to find that out too. Yeah, the fact that like you're, you're not just reading about a case and, and going to the assumption that someone else found these facts out, but it's... There must be something relieving to know that you are the one that uncovered this information and you're the one that's kind of seeing it firsthand. I think that um, it actually, you know, made me probably come out the other end much more moderate about policing issues. I was going to ask about that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, know, people are, are... that there's somebody was lying to me in every case, generally, not mm-hmm. always. Sometimes there were misunderstandings, but a lot of times, you know, people were 
saying they were abused and that they hadn't done anything at all to deserve it. And, you know, 15 Mm -hmm. cops jumped on them and beat them for 20 minutes with truncheons. And, you know, you would find out that there was a 911 call that the person was, you know, robbing a store at night. And, you know, the police responded to the call and then the person (laughs) dropped a bunch of boxes and, like, ran away. And Mm -hmm. then the cops tackled them. Mm -hmm. And it was just the kind of pretty typical thing, you know, like, just because you're running doesn't mean the cops are like, okay, I give up. Yeah. Like, that's not how it works. So You win. You know, and, and if you want the law to be that way, then you have to go to the legislature and try to get them to change the law. But right now, the cops are allowed to actually chase you and tackle you if you're running away from a crime scene. Yeah, you know? right. And maybe that's, maybe that's where I was thinking, that when you're reading these stories um, about things that happen um, with the police or any injustice, that you're not seeing it as black and white. You're seeing that there might be, this might be written from a skewed perspective. Yeah, and I think also part of the story. And, you know, there's a lot of complex laws involved. So it's actually what inspired me to go to law school was just seeing Mm -hmm. these kind of cases and thinking, now that I'm sort of really understanding how this works, it would be interesting to kind of take it at another level as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm kind of more interested in bigger policy. I think, you know, adjudicate, like, let's talk about stop and frisk for just a sec. Something that I, you know, I handled a lot of stop and frisk complaints before people knew what stop and frisk was, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, to, 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 sort of to your point also, Kim, like, you know, I, I saw this whole media discussion of stop and frisk, like, begin and arc, like, after I was very familiar with, you know, being there, looking at these cases and interviewing the people involved, you know, interviewing the police officers, interviewing the civilians who were involved in incidents like this, mm-hmm. looking at all the police paperwork, you know, knowing how the police operate to some extent. I mean, I wasn't a cop, so I didn't know everything, but, yeah. um, you know, and I had access to training materials and I was trained at the, by the police department, you know, in their procedures and things. Yeah. So, so seeing that, you know, debate was really kind of interesting knowing the, you know, the realities of the individual situations. And you, then you see these sort of cases that get made emblematic. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll give you two examples actually. And yeah. Um, there were there are two police shootings in New York City. One is of a guy named Noel Polanco, and um, he was a, a National Guardsman, mm-hmm. um, Hispanic background. I believe he was from Queens, and he was um, hoping to be a cop. And he was working in a hookah bar as like a, you know a, an employee. Mm-hmm. And he worked like this late shift and he was coming home around four in the morning and asleep in the back of his car was an off-duty police officer who was a friend of his. She was like a, like a new cop. Mm-hmm. And then a friend of his was in the passenger seat, a coworker. And they had some kind of a traffic dispute with these big trucks that carry um, teams out to go do search warrants to like raid houses first thing in the morning. Like they go out at the crack of dawn. So they try to raid the house before anybody wakes up. So he had, they were on the highway going to do their, you know, start their day, and he was on the highway going home after a long night of work, and they had some kind of a traffic dispute. Seems pretty clear that he was being a jerk on the road. And they pulled him over. And then one of the cops, this detective who was in the truck, like, walked over, knocked on the passenger's window, and then within, like, two or three seconds shot him, and he died. And um, there was, like, some, you know, the union representative was, like, well, he was reaching for something under the seat, 
but you know there was like a drill under the seat like he was not reaching probably was not reaching for the drill and then there's people in the car right one right. of them was a cop yeah so but she was asleep yeah. but then there was like they, they shot him right over the person in the passenger seat who said that like they told and him to had show his hands emotion that woke up the cop right yeah i mean but i don't <laughs> think she saw the circumstances yeah. within which the shooting happened okay. but um you know because she was asleep until the shot happened right right she certainly saw the aftermath um but you know probably will never hear what she had to say um yeah so really really bad to my mind really troubling situation right yes. like it looks awful yeah it's really hard to imagine the set of circumstances that makes this look better right and um you know, it's just hard to think of a legal justification for that, right? It seems like road rage, really. Absolutely, road rage is super yeah. common. We felt it, right? Yeah. So you can kind of access that, too. And you know that people go off the handle. And Everybody's going to, yeah, understand it. We just don't all have, like, a gun on us. Right. 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 And that's the kind of, like, that's what, you know, like, civilian oversight exists for, or what police discipline dis- exists for, is, like, the kind of situations where somebody just loses it, right? And mm-hmm. really does something off the, off the range. Then there's another case that happened not that long after where there was a 16-year-old kid in Brooklyn named Kimani Gray. Have you heard of this case? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You never heard of Polanco, though, have you? No, I haven't. Right. That was... That's a really, really deeply troubling case, the Polanco case. Yeah. Right? Kimani Gray, like, the kid pulled a, a gun out and the police shot him. Yeah. You can think about... So, and then there are some not really well-sourced comments that start floating into the media more in the way of rumors after it's been in the media for a day or two that Mm -hmm. um, they planted the gun on him or that he didn't pull the gun. But actually there were all these witness statements made to the newspaper and to the police right away Mm -hmm. that were all consistent that he had a gun, there was a gun recovered. There's no evidence except for some sort of non-sourcey, like conspiracy-y, suggestions that mm-hmm. they planted it but there's no motive attributed which then leads then the people that are reading the story to say how am i supposed to be able to figure out all of these all these details to know if this kid was right or wrong so then they just give up caring about this particular but they situation. didn't they marched in the streets there were people from yeah. all over the city going out into deep brooklyn and marching on the precinct over the Kamani Gray shooting, and it was a huge, huge thing. Even yeah. with mixed signals. And, oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. But yeah. there's no nuance anymore once the protesters are on the street, you know? So you had, yeah. like, um, the guy who's going to run for lieutenant governor, um, the city council member, Jamani right. Williams, mm-hmm. who I think is fabulous, you know, and is very on these issues. But he was, like, trying to say, like, we need to stay calm. We need to, like, you know, there's an investigation going on. We need to press for that to be done well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was really saying the right, I thought, you know, appropriate things. Right. But um, it was just a, it was a situation where it was weird to see that people were flooding the streets. There were these huge marches. There was the, you know, Twitter was, like, totally yeah. alit. Everybody knows Kamani Gray's name. To me, with my background and experience, it looked like there were there was almost nothing to say it wasn't a clean shooting. You might find something weird if you do an investigation and it turns out not to be a clean shooting. So you always keep your mind open, right? But right. you look at facts. You look at, like, evidence. Mm-hmm. You don't say, like, oh, the cops always kill kids for no reason, so they would plant a gun on the gun. You know, you don't, like, um, assume it. Yeah. You mm-hmm. just, you, if there's no facts for it, then... You know, and if somebody pulls a gun and the police can't shoot them, 
and that's a whole different discussion, but people don't really think like, well, they should have shot him in the knee or, you know, they should have shot it out of his hand. Like, that happens in the movies, but, like, that's how, like, people who are standing behind him who are totally uninvolved, that's how they yeah, get killed, they get right? Shot. Yeah. Right, exactly. And that's how he manages to, like, shoot the cops before they shoot him. You know, do, do we want cops to have to wait till they're actually shot before they can shoot back? Well, that's not the law now. And if you want to make it the law, then we have to have a conversation about why we should change the law to that. Mm-hmm. But that's not the conversation that was happening in the demonstrations. Mm-hmm. I'm all in favor of people demonstrating about police misconduct and brutality, you know. But mm-hmm. it's just weird to be from the inside to say, like, nobody knows Noel Polanco's name. Right. And that was awful. And it's so much yeah. more because so bad. And that one's, yes, yeah, so much more obvious. And it's, it's interesting to me, one, that I actually was not even aware that there was any, that there was a question of police misconduct in the Kamani Gray case. I thought it was just, that's what happened. They, I didn't even know that there was a question of him having pulled a gun. I uh, didn't hear that part of it. And it's, and uh, I wonder if it's you yeah. reading this, like where are your sources through like Facebook articles? Because um, not to get all conspiracy, no, but no, no, there no, definitely but is a... Like a difference in the yeah. media outlets, and that's that the thing I don't remember. Into your yeah, yeah, I don't remember versus... where I heard of it. And the other thing is that, like, like what you're saying, all being all about protesting over police misconduct, it's yeah, like we we should be all for that because we should be calling out this system when it's not supporting us, when it's not mm-hmm. serving us. Um, but there are so many legitimate cases to do that over, like the Noel Polanco case. Like, why? Why blow one up that isn't That's obviously not so that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and the, and you know I think then you also start to. You know, there, it used to be I think that there were cases you know where there was somebody robbing a store and they had a gun and mm-hmm. they you know fired at the police and the police fired back and it would be in the paper but nobody really made a big deal about it I think because everybody looked at it and they were like well, you know yeah. He had a gun. Uh, that sucks. Like, yeah. we don't like it when the cops have to shoot somebody, but sometimes they do. And it's a city of, you know, New York City is a city of 9 million people. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that yeah. kind of thing happens a few times a year. Yeah. Um, but now those are much more controversial, and I think it's because people have become sort of more edgy around these things. And also there's a kind of doctrinaire view that takes over where it's sort of like you're either on one side or the other. Yes. You're either pro-cop or you're, like, you know, pro-Kamani Gray, and, and he was he was either murdered or he was, you know, it was totally a great thing that they shot him. Right. That he was, like, a horrible thug. Yeah. yeah. Like, he was a stupid 16-year-old boy. Yeah. It's tragedy is what it is. Yeah. And, you know, it appears to be a legitimate shooting, but that's not nothing to be, you know, to glorify. Right. right. Yeah. And, it's you know, still a tragedy. I feel, right. like, I feel for any cop who, you know, pulls the trigger and kills somebody, right. you know, especially if it's... A child. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And especially if they kind of had to, like they were in a situation where it wasn't, it's not an easy call to make, certainly. And this stuff you're talking about, this really speaks to something that I found very troubling in the larger political and social conversation that is happening right now, this, this black and white divisiveness. And I'm finding this just extreme divisiveness really troubling, this sort of uh, unwillingness to see the, the gray area. The stuff, as you know, you're talking about in the middle, in between, the cops are amazing, the cops are evil, and in between, the cops did what they had to do, and it is still very tragic and very sad. And I think if you don't get into that gray area, mm-hmm. you can't talk about how the cops who are flawed mm-hmm. can be better. Exactly. 
Exactly. We don't. We are probably are not going to achieve perfect cups. Probably We're probably not, not going to achieve well, you know, they're humans. The, the perfect world. Yeah. But, you know, what we could do is look at, like, the specific details of incidents like, you know, the Kamani Gray shooting and come out with, like, lessons learned and ideas of how to try to avoid situations like this. And, mm-hmm. in fact, I think if you look at, you know, the New York City Police Department, their shooting rates are super low, like historically kind of low. Yeah. And they do a firearms discharge report every year, and the numbers are, like, so low compared to, you know, yeah. much smaller cities even. Yeah. And just per capita, it's ridiculously low. So, you know, they should get um, congratulated for that. And to the extent that there are controversial or bad shootings or there's an Eric Garner situation, mm-hmm. you know, um, certainly there are things that we can try. You know, I mean, I don't want to, like, try to, you know, adjudicate the Eric Garner case, right, But um, which is a live case. But uh, there's certainly things to take away from it and learn. Mm-hmm. And you, you learn in that gray area. You learn in that area where you accept that the police have some legitimate purpose in being there. Right. And, you know, and there are certainly there are police abolitionists, but I think, um, yeah, th- that's pretty extreme. Right. Uh, and how are we how are we going to improve anything if someone isn't learning? You know, like there has to be learning involved but in I improving. Think, and yeah, if. I mean, I absolutely, I I totally yeah. agree with that. But I think that in a lot of these cases, there's just so much social injustice in certain neighborhoods, even that it's, it's, it's beyond just the police. It's just not being heard and not having any power yeah. at all for such a long period of time. That it, you're right. It's it's fuck the cops. We have a podcast. Awesome. We can say that now. <laughs> you know, so to your Fucking point. <laughs> but I think it's, I think that's where the black and white comes in, where it's just, it's the same reason for, you know, rioting is wrong. But like, what's, the, what's the background to why these people, why these people are boiling mad? Absolutely. And know? I think that's absolutely worth examining as well yeah. and listening and to listening. and learning yeah. from. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think listening is the key thing, right? It's yeah. also that, you know, we need to listen to people who are upset. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and let them kind of guide the responses instead of, you know, swooping in with, like, savior plans that will be like, well, we'll make life great for you poor people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we are here to deliver you. <laughs> and hopefully there's a movement in that direction. But, so. yeah, and, you know, speaking of the polarization and stuff, I mean, we were talking about the border, um, yeah, I mean, it's a really, you know, it's exploding it's issue right now. Very exploding issue. And I know just to kind of give some background, I think the, the day that I realized that you were a lawyer was about six months ago in January when um, they they were stopping the uh, our current administration was stopping uh, immigrants, especially from seven or so Middle Eastern countries from being able to reenter into this country. And you and a lot of other volunteer lawyers were going directly to airports to offer free legal services. And I thought that was incredible. There was a New York Times article written about it when you were included in that article. Um, and you do a lot of volunteer work like that. And um, if, if you can just kind of talk to from that point on and moving forward, is this a passion of yours, the immigration uh, reform and, and what's going on in this country? and you and know, what's uh, happening right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot um, happening right now. I mean, I didn't have a huge role in the in the um, 
in the travel ban response six months ago. I went out to JFK twice. There was only one day that there was really work for me to do. There were a couple of hundred lawyers there for like a week. That's awesome. I saw a lot of people I went to law school with, a lot of people I knew from the courts who had been other fellow clerks. Um, Just a lot of people were out there. Mm -hmm. A lot of big firms were, um, you know, their associates were going out there and, and, um, you know, really top-notch lawyers were there, um, you know, camped out at cafe tables and writing habeas petitions. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was really kind of amazing to see uh, the kind of response of the, of the legal community. Um, you know, to my mind, it's like, a, you know, first they come for the blah, 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 and then, you know, they came for the session. It's that, it's that situation. We all know that phrase, right, that sort of saying. Yeah. That, you know, when they – and the kind of vitriol against uh, immigrants – that um, the current uh, president has been, you know, espousing and, and really um, trying to rally people around, I think is dangerous. I think it's really a dangerous way to think. And it's just, and it's a shorthand that doesn't actually connect to facts and reality, right? And right. I think we have to, like, you know, people can do, disagree politically, and that's, you know, fine, that's great. But um, you can't actually have a political disagreement about facts. You have to, like... There's a set of facts, and yeah. they exist whether or not you admit that they exist. Right. <laughs> exactly. And they are just facts. And sometimes it's not, you know, the easiest thing in the world to figure out what the facts are. Yeah, it's the digestion of those facts that people aren't really interested in as much anymore. And we're talking about that whole gray area of details. Yeah. Can I read this in a sentence? Oh, no, they're bad. They're, they're going to come and murder my children? Oh, easy decision. I don't want them in here. Right, like all Muslims yeah. are bad. Right. Or all Muslims are wonderful. You Which know, is like, yeah. how this whole I mean, thing is going, yeah. And, and the <laughs> idea that um, being Muslim is a shorthand for something. Right, like, right. That, you know, is that true? Like, you know, there's there's lots and lots of Muslims, just like there's lots and lots of Christians. Yeah. And, like, because we don't really think, we're not used to thinking about either. Christians as a category that all hangs together. No. Mm-hmm. And there's really no reason to think about Muslims that way. But, you know, you can argue that as an interpretation, but you have to sort of find some facts and and interpret them to get there, but I don't see that ever being done on, on that side of the debate. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry. So, uh, you know, I was out at JFK. Um, you know, we were basically trying to ensure that people didn't disappear into custody and just not, like, get on a flight to the U.S. Because at the time when the travel ban went into effect, um, there, there, the um, immigration authorities didn't know what to do with it. And you have to remember that, like, there's always uh, hundreds of people on airplanes coming to the U.S. from all around the world. At mm-hmm. any given time. Like, yeah. all the time. All the time. Every, every second. <laughs> that's, the jo- that's the job of the airplane. Yeah. And, in fact, JFK is, like, the place where a lot of them are coming. Right, so, exactly. Um, yeah, so, like, the, the plan, like, this order rolls out that, you know, these people can't be admitted. And they're, like, in the air when it rolls out. Or they're, like, about to board their plane abroad. And you had this total chaos as the uh, the people on the ground, the the border and um, the immigration officials, mm-hmm. were trying to figure out like, <laughs> what what does this mean? What do I actually do with this person in front of me right now? Right. Um, but what you ended up having was what was called what they're sort of referring to as extreme vetting was at least happening. So there were a lot of people on incoming flights who were sort of disappearing. Everybody would you'd see all the people come out of the gate. And then somebody, 
you know, we were sort of canvassing the waiting area for families. Like, is anybody missing a relative? Yeah. So we would kind of try to see if there were, there, because the government wouldn't say if they had people detained in the back. Sure. But there were people being detained uh, because of the travel ban. Right. There were also another por portion of it was that uh, U.S. immigration officials started to, like, uh, pressure airlines to not let people from those countries board their flight in the originating <laughs> country. Right? So, U.S., I mean, so the U.S. travel ban doesn't apply in Abu Dhabi or yeah. Abu Dhabi. But, um, but if the airline wants to have a good relationship with customs, who they deal with every moment of every day. Right. So it's pushing on the privatized saying, yeah. organization to do the job of Homeland Security. Yeah, because the problem yeah. was once they arrive here in this country. They're here. They're here. <laughs> and then um, what do you do with them then if we have a ban on their travel to the country? So it was like, are we going to set up some new, you know, Guantanamo? Are we going to send them to Guantanamo? Are we going to Return them. Put them in the court system yeah. with some kind of charge. Uh, I don't, you know, what do you do? Can you stick them back on the plane and send them back? Will that cost money? I, you know, the, it yeah. was just a mess. And, um, it, you know, nobody thought about this ahead of time because the people in the administration don't think about stuff like that. Ahead of time. <laughs> um, <laughs> or at all. So they wanted this spelling. nice, sweeping, you know, <laughs> rallying cry of these, we're keeping these bad people out, Urgh, stern. And it wasn't practical in any way. And so, you know, there were people with green card holders who were coming in from, and it was a mess. So, um, you know, there was a lot of success in the court. I think that in um, a day or two, we're going to hear from the Supreme Court about the travel ban. Um, ultimately, really? there was an injunction oh, wow. issued by a judge in Hawaii. And that decision, I, yeah. could, I looked this morning at the new Supreme Court cases, and um, that was not one. But it's any day. Like there's, I think there's six, five or six cases left, for, you know, decisions left to come out, and there's a couple of days left in their term. So, oh. uh, we're gonna find out whether the travel ban can exist and in, in what form. But um, yeah, so I was uh, involved in that a bit, um, and you know, I kind of keep an eye on that issue because I see it as this, um, as this kind of litmus test again. Like I said, you know, they're coming for the immigrants, they're coming for the Muslims, right? And I see it as like a litmus test for what, where is the heart and soul of the country. Um, so with this current thing with like the baby mm -hmm. snatching at the border and the, the kind of zero tolerance stuff at the border, there's been an, and I have, you know, relatives who are in favor of that. I have, you know, friends and, and friends whose networks are wildly in favor of that who, you know, I see their stuff on, on social media. Yeah. So I try to kind of keep my ears open and, and stay engaged. Um, I try to listen to those things, but the the kind of rancor on the um, on the anti-immigration side is is pretty uh, terrifying. Yeah. Um, also, there's just like a, a total, it's like pure propaganda around this. So there's just yeah. that gray area is gone. There's no uh, factual analysis. There's no like, you know, there's all this talk about like the, the democratic law. Um, that was passed that, like, you know, may, won't let us um, put kids together uh, with their families. Uh, we have to do separations. Because that's what uh, the president has been saying, right? Right. Um, which is just not true. There's a lot of falsehoods about immigration causing crime. Yeah. Um, you know, my in-laws are, uh, are ministers. Mm -hmm. 
and my father-in-law has done a lot of prison outreach, mm-hmm. and I he taught in the state prisons in New Jersey and in New York, and I taught a class many years ago at in one of the state prisons in New York, and uh, one of the students who was in my class and who was also in my father-in-law's class, is, he's still in close contact with, and the guy is now in Dominican Republic, so he was in prison for a, a serious felony. Mm-hmm. And um, he had grown up in New York City. His parents brought him over when he was an infant mm-hmm. from Dominican Republic. So mm-hmm. he didn't speak any Spanish. Yeah. He didn't know anybody or have family in Dominican Republic. That's the thing, right. Yeah, exactly. He, uh, there wasn't, he wasn't a dreamer, right, because he committed a serious felony. So he had the sa- otherwise the same background. But to be a dreamer, mm-hmm. to, to qualify for DACA, right. you can't have any – you have to be vetted. Right. Seriously vetted, you have this huge background check, right? And if you've committed a violent crime, the immigration laws are very clear. Like, there's almost no way around being deported when you get out of jail. My my in-laws, you know, um, still are, you know, supportive to this former inmate and Mm -hmm. student of theirs, um, you know, who I also know who's in in DR now. He was deported after he got out of jail. His family is still here. Mm -hmm. They they could have, he could have applied, you know, gotten DACA had he not been involved in this, uh, terrible crime when he was, you know, a young kid. Mm-hmm. He's now middle-aged. Yeah. He lands in the DR with, like, 50 bucks in his pocket, doesn't know anybody, oh doesn't God. speak any Spanish, right? Fresh out of jail. Oh so God. he's been in state prison for, like, 15 years or something. I mean, he was in for a long time. It's Which a is already term. a shock to re-entry, yeah, I mean, re-enter any society. Stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, I understand that people have limited sympathy for people who've, you know, committed terrible crimes, but, you know, do we... Well, I mean, once you've completed your sentence. Do we want to, like, execute them? I mean, you know, yeah. like, at some yeah. point, they come back. Right. You know, we have to be realistic about, like, the yeah. fact that we, instead of disabling them and having people who can't come back into society, Absolutely. we should have ways that they can become functioning again. You and know, be part they, of society again. It's yeah. that whole learning yeah. and getting better thing, providing opportunities for learning mm-hmm. and getting better. And it benefits everybody. It does. To do it that way. Yeah. But um, anyhow, so, you know, he's still calls my in-laws all the time and checks in with them and you know he but it basically everything was like getting stolen from him he's a target when he shows up in the dr because he doesn't speak spanish and right. he's an american and they're like take everything he's got so yeah. you know he's <laughs> trying to figure out like how to speak spanish and how to figure out who he has to bribe to like actually get the packages delivered to him so that they're not like opened by the post office. I don't, you know, oh it was like my God. he was getting like packages. My in-laws would send him a package and stuff would all get stolen, or his family would send him stuff. That's Meanwhile, so even sad. if he ever did come back to the U.S., like his family, while he was incarcerated, mm-hmm. uh, committed uh, social security fraud on his social security number. Like they sold oh, it. Oh no! And um, oh. they <laughs> took out credit cards in his name and like ran them all up. You know, there's like whatever, yeah. $30,000 worth of unresolved He's debt screwed. that he has nothing to do with, right. but it's like... Oh, uh, man. Some people just have cards stacked against them, and other people just have it all, <laughs> like, yeah. beyond cards stacked against them. I mean, so, it's just so sad, you know? And those are and th- all of the things that are happening to this guy is legal, but is it right, you know? And that's where... Right. That's where you run into, I think, with all of these child separation laws that, you know, we're all feeling these this moral pull. 
and they keep telling us, well, this is on the books and this is what's legal and this is, you know, do you want these people coming into these country to murder your children and like all of these threats about like how they're trying to make us safer. And we're all feeling this moral pull to say this isn't the right thing. This isn't the right law to put into place. This is what needs to be changed. I mean, I think there are a few key facts that it's just really nice to kind of go back to mm. because they ground the whole conversation. Mm. I think that the whole conversation about these border separations is has been like made totally insane on purpose for propagandistic reasons. So if you go back to some f- basic facts, you know, First off, there's this idea that we were talking about before about legal and and, um, what does illegal mean, right? right? So there are a lot of different kinds of laws, and violating the law can have all kinds of different consequences, right? So if um, if your car registration expires, does that make you an illegal? You know, we're used to thinking about people as being... We're used to that. That phrase contains within it the idea that somebody is labeled illegal. They themselves are illegal because their immigration status is out of norm or out of uh, compliance. Yeah. Right? Or they're a criminal. Immigration status is like a piece of them, right? right? Yeah. Or they're a criminal, right? They're they're criminal justice. If you're an illegal, you're equally a criminal. Yes. You know, they're out of alignment with the criminal justice laws. Mm -hmm. There are obviously like degrees of being of breaking the law. There are civil laws and there are criminal laws and immigration laws can be either. So one thing that I think is very confusing for people, well, immigration law is very confusing and it's complex. So when people come over and they don't have legal status as they cross the border, they don't have the right paperwork for entry, they don't have an approved entry, they are doing there's two things that can happen to them when they cross the border they can be charged with a federal crime a misdemeanor which is a very it's not a common kind of Mm. federal crimes are mostly felonies Mm -hmm. mostly serious crimes so the fact that it's a misdemeanor shows you that it kind of stands out among federal infractions as a really minor thing right that it's way more minor than most kinds of behavior in the federal system are treated if they're criminal. Right. So illegal entry, entering without proper paperwork, right, can be a misdemeanor. But that same behavior of crossing the border without paperwork, right, can also result in civil deportation proceedings brought against you. You, are, you don't have proper immigration status, and so the country seeks to remove you for not being entitled to be, you know, not being in the country with proper status. Mm -hmm. That's a civil proceeding. Now, people could call you illegal because you're out of compliance with Mm -hmm. the civil ordinances of immigration law, but that doesn't mean that you're criminal merely by virtue of that. But that gets conflated a lot. I see that all the time, that these people are, their mere presence in the country is a serious crime that has to be stopped, right? That they are criminals by virtue of even being in the country. The other thing is that if you come in with legal status and then that legal status expires for some reason, which could be a hiccup, it could be a paperwork mistake, it mm-hmm. could be a clerical error, it could be like a failure to file on time that you're, right. you know, you, you didn't remember that you had to file or you, or it could be that you like intended to stay here out of status and you were trying to like, you know, avoid la migra or whatever, I don't know. It could be a million different things, right? And that is generally a civil infraction, right? So 
so this idea of separation of families comes from, so what used to happen, what used to happen is that if a family came over without paperwork and they crossed the border into the United States, they would be detained for deportation. They would not be charged with a crime. Sometimes the parents might be charged with a crime, right? And then uh, they would be detained in a criminal facility. And just to, to clarify, if a family does come over in the past, be, before a month ago, were the, were the family separated? So go, let's go way back. Okay. Let's go back to like let's 2003. To, yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's go back like 15 years. Mm-hmm. In, in that time period, if somebody was, had entered the country without paperwork mm-hmm. and they were charged, they could be, if they were charged with a crime, the entire family would be housed in a, in a detention center pending the criminal charges, okay. right? Now, remember, there, there should be a, a bail system that operates, right? Like, you know, not everybody gets held until their trial, right? So if there's criminal charges pending against you, you have due process rights. You have the right to fight those charges or to have some ordinary procedure that you're able to sort of have your voice in. Um, contest the charges against you. You're not just assumed to be guilty. You can't be assumed to be guilty. It's a constitutional right. That applies to immigrants. Mm -hmm. So there's another little key fact. There are constitutional rights that apply to people who are in the country who are not citizens and who have entered illegally or who have entered against, you know, against immigration regulation. Hmm. In any case, if they're charged criminally, it used to be in 2003, the whole family gets put in criminal jail together, right? Because there's a criminal case pending. They don't want to, but they didn't want to separate the family. So they would put the whole family in criminal jail. So they have these like, sort of like Not j- that that's right jails. either, but yeah. yeah. Sure, sure. That's what the fact was in 2003. That's right. And right. then, but that would be rare, right? And the typical thing would be that there would be a civil deportation proceeding brought. And sometimes when people have a civil de- deportation proceeding brought against them, they are held because there's, if there's a concern that they may not appear for their deportation hearing, if there's a concern that they might try to Just flee disappear. so that they don't get deported, right. or if they, there's some reason to think that they won't comply with the deportation order, they may be held in immigration detention, civil detention for immigration uh, violators, okay? Okay. For deport- people in deportation proceedings. Mm-hmm. The other thing is what Trump calls catch and release, because he loves to compare immigrants to animals, and um, it's a it's a disgusting phrase in my in my view. Absolutely. Yeah. But the other thing is that you know because in any kind of pr- process, if anybody is brought, if either, any of the three of us are brought into court, right, we will probably be, ideally, released while the case against us is pending. There's a, first off, there's a presumption of innocence. You have to have a finding from the court or a jury of guilt or of liability. In the immigration context where it's civil, it would be like a liability or an actual, you know, an order of deportation has to be entered, finding that you are here against status. After you've had your chance to have your say, you have your orderly process, right? During that orderly process, unless there's a reason to hold you, then you should be released, right? You shouldn't be held in custody the whole time. That's the ordinary process. Like if you were arrested for shoplifting, you wouldn't expect to spend six months in jail waiting for your day in court. Right. Right. You'd ordinarily, you know, (laughs) bail would be set. And, you know, if you had the resources or if your family could come up with it or your community could come up with it, you'd be out. Right. Right. 
And so uh, that's what catch and release is. When, when Trump says catch and release, what he's talking about is the fact that people are not held in detention. He's talking about a judicial With system. a presumption of guilt. Right. He's talking about the ordinary process of, of justice, right. whether it's civil or criminal. So, <laughs> all right. So I like to simplify terms. <laughs> so what used to happen, right, is in the civil context, families would either be housed in an immigration detention center, which is not a jail, should not be a jail, mm-hmm. though often it was. It's very complicated, right? <laughs> yeah. Often it was like it really INS is. would lease space in a county jail, but they, they were supposed to sort of set it up as like a detention center, not a jail. Uh-huh. Sometimes it can be very hard to tell the difference between an immigration detention center and a county jail. Uh-huh. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> immigration detainees will be mixed with people who have criminal cases against them pending who are American citizens. So mm-hmm. like, in any case, you had these family detention centers, and then you have these criminal family detentions happening as well. Mm-hmm. 2009, a um, uh, um, uh, court case comes out that says you cannot uh, imprison children in a criminal jail with, while their parents are facing criminal charges. So if a parent is charged with a crime for illegally entering the country, the court says it is a violation of the children's rights to incarcerate them with their parent when they're not being charged or while the case is pending because they're children, right? right? So you can't have family detention in the criminal context anymore. Okay. So what is the federal government supposed to do? So what did they do, right? Yeah. Catch and release. Right, so they started. I mean, I, I shouldn't even be repeating that phrase, I guess. Yeah. But they started to release people. Yeah. You know, whole families. Okay. Who had criminal charges pending. Right. And release them because they didn't have uh, the ability to hold them in a jail. Right. Or they take the children and put them into a non-criminal supervised system, like a child welfare system. A group home. While the kid, while the parents remain in criminal detention, mm-hmm. but you can't keep the kids with the parents anymore because the court says you can't keep these kids in jail. Right. And so, so the plus was that's where you parents, started to have family they were separation. separating them. Right. But now the other thing that you have is you have this phenomenon. So we have, as it so happens, the Department of Health and Human Services has a way has facilities for these kids. Yeah. So they started to put them in these facilities for unaccompanied minors. All right, so then you have this other phenomenon of children show up at the border who are minors Mm -hmm. without any parent with them. So then what does the federal government do with those people? So what they have done is they have a system for unaccompanied minors, right, Mm -hmm. unaccompanied children Mm -hmm. who are placed into the custody of, uh, of health and human services. And these are sort of like, you know, this is like ACS or like, you know, group homes. Uh, and they're supposed to be, you know, a good facility for kids, right? And so now what you have are two streams of population in that group now. You have people who arrived at the, at the border, across the border, without a, par- a parent or an adult accompanying them. And you also have people who have been separated from parents facing criminal charges in the immigration system yeah. who are now being treated as an unaccompanied minor even though they were accompanied and their parents are in the custody of the same government that is has custody of them but they're in two separate departments and so the parents and the children are lose lose track of each other right or the government can sort of lose track and those people are on different tracks as well right so the parent is in the criminal 
uh, the, the system for criminal enforcement. Mm-hmm. And if the parent is ordered deported as a result or ordered to jail as a result of their illegal entry mm-hmm. um, and the charges against them for that, the child may, you know, may be 2,000 miles away because it's a federal system. So they're housed all around the country. So they may be 2,000 miles away in a totally different agency's custody. Right. And nobody knows that they're connected to a parent who's being deported tomorrow. So the parent may be deported out of the country and we still have the kid as an unaccompanied minor. Oh my god. In a detention facility. Right? Because once and they're in that is... system, it's like, you know, because but, this and... is really complicated. So you can imagine that the people who work in the system, I mean, I'm sure that they know a hell of a lot more about it than I do. But you can also imagine that like you have to look for all kinds of shorthands to like deal with this, right? Mm-hmm. Like this complexity. And so um if you work in that system and you've got all these unaccompanied kids, you're kind of wanting to treat them all the same. Like, you know, what do you do? Like, so a yellow star onto the ones whose parent was in the criminal system? Right. Like, yeah. True. Is there, is there an influx of, of more people trying to get into this country, I guess is a question that a lot of people are asking or has the flow been the same for the past 20 years let's say there is absolutely not an influx there is a huge decline in illegal border crossings Mm -hmm. we are at um kind of modern era lows Mm -hmm. so under george w bush numbers were way way higher right so the best measurements that exist for how many people are arriving in the country without documentation are that the numbers are really low they were low under obama and they continue to be low i mean i think the real point is there is no emergency right Right. If there is an emergency, then it's an emergency that that has declined to the point where there's nothing that like where we could sort of go about handling it in a sane way. There's no emergency. Yeah. There is just no so, massive influx of people coming over the border. It's just not true. Yeah. And then the other question um, that people people keep bringing up because the, our administration keeps telling us that there's um, they're coming over and the criminal rate is going up that these are people that are in gangs, right? There's the whole gang story mm-hmm. where it's, what, what's the name of that gang? Five. MS-13. MS-13. Um, so so there's that item. If Do you know any information about that? Or is that, again, another piece of bogus? There's 350 million people in the U.S. Right. Roughly. Right? So it's a massive country. Yeah. So if there are, like, you know, a thousand MS-13 members... That's like a tiny, tiny, tiny yeah. little drop in a massive, massive ocean. Mm-hmm. Essentially, that's a negligible amount of MS-13 members. I'm right. sure they can do a lot of damage, and I would hate to be on the other end of that. But that's and I feel n- bad for anybody who is, and it's certainly an issue that needs to be addressed and not ignored. I'm not trying to say it's nothing. Right. Sure. But I to say too. that to say that there's some crisis but using this because is of a it. crisis. That's, yeah. and the that's other the thing. Point. So yeah. the other thing is that you know I I am I now have gone back to graduate school. So I'm at John Jay College now oh, cool. doing a PhD in criminal justice, okay? That's awesome. What we do is like a specialized kind of sociology. We look at the criminal justice system and crime as an empirical phenomena of social world and we try to understand what the nature of crime is, how it works, how it functions in society. So we do empirical research to try to understand crime, okay? So when the president of the United States and his attorney general, his top law enforcement official, 
um, say things that are that are demonstrably false based on all of the empirical research that has been done to, mm -hmm. to try to understand reality, mm -hmm. right? There is uh, no a f there is no crime increase attributed to immigration. So this is there's an no data to back that up at all. It's not that there's no data. It's yeah, that yeah. there's data to disprove that. Ah, oh. It's not that there is yeah. no data to prove <laughs> it, but it might be true. Yeah. It's that there is data, mm -hmm. and the data shows, right? The data shows that there is a mild crime easing impact of immigration. That immigration does have an impact on crime, oh. and that the impact on crime is that crime rates go down slightly as immigration goes up. Really? It's not a strong effect. I didn't know It's that. a mild effect. Yeah. But it's measurable. And mm -hmm. somebody just did what's called a systematic review. They looked at something around 50 studies that have looked at this issue mm -hmm. all around the country. The, the studies that have looked at um, uh, different cities, all studies that have kind of controlled, that, that have been rigorous, mm -hmm. all studies that have um, controlled for all different kinds of factors that might have an influence on crime rates and have studied the impact of immigration, right? So what they did is a study of studies. It's called like a, um, a meta-analysis, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they um, took all of the data from like 50 different studies and combined it all together to see what the aggregate sort of measurement of the impact of immigration on crime is. Yeah. And I mean, so this is like really pretty sophisticated analysis at a very high level of detail about actual facts yes. measured on the ground. I like facts. Yeah. And the actual fact is that overall immigration has a mild easing effect on crime rates. That if a city has a higher immigrant populace, that there is a lower, that there, that is associated with a decrease in crime rates. And that is with everything else being held steady. That mm. means that they are also accounting for the impact of, you know, racial heterogeneity in a city, right. the um, impact of uh, low socioeconomic status, you know, the, mm -hmm. the amount of the population in poverty. Right. They're accounting for things like, you know, the ge geographical location. They're mm -hmm. accounting for things like, you know, all of these different factors that people know have an impact on the crime rate. All other things being equal, immigration decreases crime. So it is opposite of what the attorney general and the president are saying. And they don't care, right. it appears. Yeah. But in any case, if we want to have an actual conversation, you know, this is, this is the real, like, you can have political differences about how to interpret that fact, but that fact exists and it has to be taken into account. So in the end, is it, in your opinion, I mean, is this just kind of a red herring? So there's other things that could happen you know uh trying to get money for a wall or trying to pass other pieces of legislation while this conversation is taking over the noise do you think that it's yeah i think it's really more about you know um politics than about you know problem solving yeah so i mean you know there's no emergency of immigration mm -hmm. there's um there is no requirement. So I want, uh, uh, there's no uh, crime wave happening. We're at some of the lowest crime rates in, in recorded history in the U.S., in modern history. Yeah. Last year, the, the murder rate in New York City uh, dipped back to levels that hadn't been seen since the 50s, right? Wow. So we're talking about an incredibly steep 
decline in crime since 1993 that's been consistent. Now, there's been a little bit of, like, uptick, but we're at, like, historic lows. So there's no, like, and there's been a little bit of uptick in certain cities, and there's, you know, people are trying to understand that, but that's also going back down again. Mm-hmm. So there's an overall downward trend uh, in all crime around the country. So we're really, like, at an incredibly peaceful time. We're, like, living in a really lucky, <laughs> lucky moment. Does it feel the, like that to No, you? <laughs> the irony there is just unbelievable because we're also all at each other's throats all the time, and it just seems like the tension is way up here. Or that here. the world is going right. to end all because the of and there's so much, evildoers yeah, coming and into this country. I've been yeah. sensing more, and, and, you know, it could be because the advent of social media puts all of these intense feelings right in our faces all the time and the internet does that so i've been feeling a stronger presence of vitriol and and anger and outrage and animosity and people being at each other's throats and it, it also or could there's just could be, be major social injustice yeah and blatant lies yeah, yeah. on facts from the highest of powers yeah Maybe. yeah i mean <laughs> I, I think that there's you know there's a lot of uh, propagandistic purposes being served by all of this, right? Oh, yeah, and sure. and I won't, you know, I'm not like uh, going to say that, you know, that uh, democratic leadership in the United States hasn't right. also engaged in, you know, in highlighting uh, convenient facts and, um, you know, it's bending things. But reason. I think there's, what there's a kind do. of a mooring to um, having some data at the bottom of that, mm-hmm. you know, where the, the, there's spin and twisting that mm-hmm. happens on that side. Sometimes it's uh, over the line, but I think in general there's a sort of an acknowledgement of uh, of fact, right. right? That we that we have a set of facts that we agree on, and I think there's also a lot of conservatives who you know are uh, trying to under they have a different take than liberals do on how to interpret the facts of the world that we live in, but we have to have that shared set of facts. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to go back to, I'm sorry, is uh, is asylum. Yeah, I want to talk about that too. This Definitely. has been kind of blowing up, right? So yeah. I think yesterday, um, maybe yesterday, Donald Trump tweeted something about we have to end asylum. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, asylum is uh, applying for asylum in the United States is legal. Mm-hmm. The the government is required to accept applications for asylum. Right. That is a legal obligation on the United States to accept applications from people for political asylum. When people apply for asylum, there are two ways that they can do it. They can go to the border at a port of entry and uh, walk up to an immigration officer and ask for an application for asylum. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or they can enter the United States at another place. That means crossing the border illegally. Mm-hmm. And then they can apply within a year after arriving inside the U.S. Right? Now, I'm getting that from, like, a, a web page at U.S. Um, CIS. Yeah. Right? Which is the um, Customs and Immigration Service. Yeah. Right? Where they lay out the procedure. I mean, it's all kind of dictated by regulation and law, right? Um how they say to do it, right? But if you're in the country, they their process envisions you applying within a year of entering the country right. for asylum. Mm-hmm. What's happened with these um, this zero tolerance policy that Sessions announced at the behest of Trump maybe um, 
I don't know, six months ago, I guess, now, mm-hmm. is that they're now criminally prosecuting everybody who enters the U.S. without uh, documentation, right? So that's why – so it used to be that only, you know, some kind of case where there was something really egregious or something crazy going on or this person was some kind of certain kind of person right. that had certain flags would be put into criminal enforcement. Yeah. Everybody else would be uh, put into civil deportation proceedings, right? Right, because there's the choice. The same behavior can result in a civil or a criminal action, right? So what the government has done is it said we're not going to do civil at all. We're going to do criminal charges in every one of these cases. So they're bringing that federal misdemeanor, this minor little law, mm-hmm. right? So now they like they sent 35 uh, assistant U.S. attorneys out to the border from like other parts of the country to help pop process this massive they're like crushing the detention facilities the courts can't some in some courts i just read this two days ago in some courts you can't get a court date uh for your case now for something like 1400 days so it's like years before you can get a court date because the courts are just totally flooded because there are so many of these cases being brought now right don't talk about costs of other things being impactful when you're i mean can you imagine how much money is being put into just this massive amounts of money uh, yeah endless pots of money there is no end to the amount of money that the government is willing to put into this current government is willing to put into this they don't care that they are are basically burning money yeah in order to charge people with like ridiculous minor charges that we've never done before it's not a legal norm to do is it technically available to them? It is. The system is not designed to handle it in part because it's stupid to do and it's a bad, yeah. a bad choice. Yes. And any prosecutor has to triage cases, right? They're not going to prosecute every single thing. Yeah. So, again, it's like, um, you know, and the other thing is that <laughs> nobody knows how many federal statutes there are, in fact. Really? Yeah. No. Is so, it like uh, stars in the sky? Like, are there that yes. many? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> they are hidden in all different kinds of places. Um, there is one uh, title of the United States Code, which is the federal statutes, that is a criminal title. It's the title for crimes, and there's criminal statutes there. But they also exist in all the other, like, 50-some-odd titles of the U.S. Code. <laughs> and they exist in federal regulations. The Code of Regu- Federal Regulations is, like, this massive... I mean, we used to have in the court where I worked... The bookshelf was like the size of this wall behind you. You know, it's like 10 feet long, seven feet high, and it's all hardbound books. And that's the U.S. code. Wow. Right? And there's like tens of thousands of pages in there. And there's who knows how many crimes. And then there's also the Code of Federal Regulations, which is way bigger and which we didn't have a copy of because it's so large. It was like, you know, you get it all on the computer now anyway. But just to give you a sense of this is a, a vast universe, right? So there was actually a request made by, I believe it was a senator a couple of years ago, asking for um, a report on how many uh, crime, federal crimes there were. And the agency mm-hmm. that was tasked with this said, we don't have the ability to do this. Yeah. We can't count them. So when people talk about, you know, this crime of coming into the country um, and violating this misdemeanor statute and that that somehow has to become the highest priority of the nation at a time when immigration is at serious lows, when crime is at lows, when we know that immigration has a beneficial effect on crime rates, when we've got 
you know, these impacts like children being torn, you know, from their families when it's sparking this massive humanitarian crisis, right, when it's alienating all of the international allies of the country, and when it's totally destroying the criminal justice agencies that are tasked with carrying these yeah. laws out, What's the they're reason? forced to bring these charges that are stupid to bring, and they don't have the resources to, to handle them all. So, you know, just What's the, the end game? Like, what's the... Camps. I mean, they're building camps. You know, yeah. like, those are concentration camps. You know, concentration camp is a, is a camp in which you concentrate undesired people. Like, that's a concentration camp. Yeah. You know, the words actually mean something. Yeah. And yeah, we're at the yeah. point where, like, that is... The, the, that's the appropriate yeah, the term. The parallel is, is... People are seeing the, the pieces come together where there's an obvious parallel. Yeah, it's not, it's, you know, I don't it's think it's exactly we're we're redoing history all over again. And I don't think it's like Godwin's law to say that, you know, the kind of behavior that that the administration's engaging in, this kind of uh propaganda, you know, is very similar to the propaganda that was engaged in uh in the Third Reich. Hmm. So, you know, it's um I think it's worth paying attention to that. And you know, the level of I mean, go ahead go ahead and, and look in the social media world of the right wing, even people who are pretty middle of the road like you know one of my relatives who i'm in touch with you know he's like a union worker and a, a biker you know he builds his own bikes and stuff and um you know i think he's a great guy i like him a lot i disagree with him on politics a lot mm -hmm. i think that he you know hears a lot of stuff that's pretty toxic but when i see the discussions that he's tapped into on the other side of me yeah the level of Hatred and animosity and inhumanity there is uh, pretty startling and it's a little bit uh, clarifying, you know, that I think we really have progressed to the point of like dehumanizing, you know, immigrants, Muslims. And that's when you start losing empathy for someone when you treat them like animals or compare them to rats, how they used to compare Jews. And, yeah. and that's yeah. when all of these things that we're talking about, all of these facts stop meaning anything or stop being important and that's when the rhetoric of hey let's go back to the facts stops being effective and stops being yeah useful. a useful tool yeah. yeah because what you have on the other side is you're faced with just like blind yeah. hatred and there's not a lot of um even people who are you know don't i think it's it's so easy to slip into you know even on the on the left on the it's left, very easy to sure. sort of slip into like you know mischaracter like there's that, you know, meme that went around about like, uh, you know, Trump saying, oh, if I ever wanted to run for president, I'd run as a Republican because they're so idiotic that they would like, elect, you know, I could tell them anything and they'd believe it. Yeah. This meme like went around a million times, right. but it's totally not true. It's completely fabricated. Right. But like social media really lends itself to this. Um, oh, sure. And also to kind of like, you know, saying first, right? Like, yeah. oh, I got there. Oh, I had the snappy comeback. Oh, I, you know. I have like some clever and like these kind of little like propagandistic memes that have contained within them a whole analysis that defeats factual curiosity. It defeats curiosity. I think we have like this crisis of curiosity. Yeah, people taking everything they're handed at just face value. There's not a whole lot of critical thinking or digging. And it's funny because it comes at a time when everybody is talking about like the mainstream media, right? You know, yeah. Like, oh, you you <laughs> sheeple! Us all these lies. Like the, the sheeple are not like looking through. Yeah. The mainstream media, which 
actually still has like a professional attachment to facts, right? right. You may disagree with how they interpret right. those facts, but they but provide them to you. Yeah. And you <laughs> don't have like these Russian background, you know, sources kind of feeding you something different than feeding somebody else because they're going to share that meme and they're going to share that meme and then go at it. Right. You know? And yeah, and it's just. <laughs> it's, I, I got an email today yes, from, um, I've been put doing podcasts you know i upload the podcast for people and you do know the show that dave emery does yeah yeah (laughs) so dave emery does a show that talks about fascism and talks about all of these kind of conspiracy theories and um you know and he said how does it feel now to realize (laughs) (laughs) that everything i've been everything i've been doing is true you know (laughs) we're in a fascist state (laughs) it's like Oh my God! <laughs> Maybe I should have listened a little deeper to his. <laughs> yeah, Dave. Everybody's rambles. been doing that show for for a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's creepy. Is there a positive? close to all of this of like how um from i and i think maybe maybe you're gonna tell us just not to keep looking at the black and white and to and to continue to dive for those facts but um how do you how do you keep energized with with um the state of the world and keep active without any without burning yourself out yeah i mean you know i like i went to grad school because i i want to contribute to improving the criminal justice system and you know i um try to focus on that i you know it's a long-term goal it's it doesn't necessarily like relate to the day-to-day goings on but Mm um uh so i think it's important to kind of you know, think about the bigger picture things that you engage in in your life. Um, you know, why are you doing those things? Are they things that contribute to a better world, a better society that help people? And if they are, to the extent that they are, you know, then then you can focus on that and like really try to do that well. You know, you have to kind of pick your lane to some extent. You yeah. can't you can't do everything. Yeah. So you know, you have your your thing, right? I mean, I worked for the federal courts, right? And I thought that was a great thing to do, but. On the other side, like I couldn't say anything publicly about politics while I'm working for a federal judge. It's right. just it's it's ethically not appropriate, mm-hmm. and I shouldn't be, um, you know, suggesting that the judge's opinion is being affected by you know um, what I'm saying, or you know, I shouldn't be saying stuff um, right. that could color how people see the judge's fairness because I work closely with the judge, right? Yeah. So. Um, that's a restriction that you know was frustrating at times but um but at the same time you know that's the role that i chose to have right and i wanted to do that role well you know so i think it's important to kind of think about you know but to the extent that you don't you know have a a lane that's you know connected to the sort of our shared public life Mm -hmm. right then you know i mean picking a place to volunteer and like doing it yeah actually i think like Reengaging in meat space is really important. I agree with that. I think that's one of the most important things we can be doing is like reestablishing as many human connections as possible, like reminding each other that we're all people. I keep hoping that like social media will get kind of boring to people. Yeah, right. You know? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> it Wouldn't is kind of great. It is. It's the same <laughs> thing over and over again. Get and, off of there. And just find ways, like you said, find ways to connect with people and show gratitude. I, I, I'm so appreciative of the work that you're doing and a work of a lot of other people that, uh, that do a lot of thankless uh, volunteer work 
and um, social justice, things that I don't think a lot of people have the guts to be able to get into it without just having a mental breakdown. Yeah, the right. stamina. I mean, it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's hard. I think it's also, you know, just important to keep having fun, right? Like, to think of, like, I mean, I, I keep That's doing, like, my radio show. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like, it's, it's a lot of work, so but it's, like, it's so satisfying it's, and fun. And yeah. I make sure that it's, like, sometimes it has a little, like, you know, maybe politically commentary or relevant commentary and song a, choices. But, you know, whatever. It's a fun show. Place. It's like, yeah, yeah. Keeps yeah. you energized for the fight. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you're saying uh, self-care is to listen to Vocal Fry at uh, Absolutely. 7 o'clock on Mondays. Absolutely. <laughs> come, and, come and say hi on the playlist comments. Oh, thank you so much. Thank for you, Dan. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, yes. <laughs>